Coming to you live from Placentia Presbyterian Church in Placentia, California, it's Ask Science Mike Live! Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, known on the internet as Ask Science Mike. I'm your basic deordained college dropout fool with a very popular podcast. This week we have a live episode, so the questions are unfiltered and the answers completely unrehearsed, so use Google to fact check literally everything that I say tonight. Uh, I do have some events coming up this month, so I'd like to tell you about them. October 26th and 27th, I'll be at Montreat, North Carolina for Evolving Faith with Sarah Bessie, Rachel Evans, and a bunch of their friends. November 3rd and 4th, I will be at First Congregational United Church of Christ in Greeley, Colorado for a conference on contemplative spirituality and Christianity. The Liturgist Gathering is coming to Minneapolis November 16th and 17th, and it is coming to Nashville Friday, November 30th, and Saturday, December 1st. I also want to let you know that in the next few days, we're doing an online pay-what-you-can book club around panentheism and mysticism called the Cosmic Campfire. You can sign up today by going to Cosmic Campfire Party. But we've got a podcast to do, so let's get it started. My name is Jeff, and in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, he proposes a seven-point continuum. One, number one is a person of whatever faith who is deeply invested in their faith and would consider themselves a fundamentalist or whatever you might call that. Mm-hmm. At the other end, seven is the atheist for whom there is no external power of any sort. Where do you place yourself on that continuum and why? Fantastic question about the Dawkins scale. Um, So that's a scale of certainty about the existence of God. So I don't know that one necessarily denotes fundamentalism, merely a high degree of certainty about whether God exists or not. Um, I think when I was a Southern Baptist, I would have been a 1.1 or a 1. Very, very certain, not only that God existed, but that I knew specifically which God existed, uh, and then that God existed. Sent Jesus as an incarnate son, the whole thing. I was a one. Uh, the great thing about one religions or high certainty religions is I call them atheist training camps. So if you look at the two denominations, which in their deconverts, so 44% of Americans will go through a faith transition at some point in their life. Um, less than 44% of Southern Baptists and Mormons go through a faith transition. But of those who do, they are much more likely to become atheists than your former Methodists or Presbyterians who are just become brunchers. Um, <laughs> and that's because when you've been, had this high degree of epistemological certainty in the systematic theology set up, if it starts to crack at all, it cracks Big time. So I went from a one Southern Baptist to a 6.9 atheist 
over a period of about six months, real quick. And that mainly happened because I read the Bible a lot. And um, (laughs) that's true. So today, on a scale of one to seven, probably the square root of negative one, also known as I, the imaginary number, like the question doesn't make sense to me anymore. Because what does it mean to be certain about God? What the heck do I even mean by God? Um, So what I have found is that Although in a certain framework, I really appreciate skepticism and atheism, that framework is a particular worldview that I actually ascribe to, materialism. What is is what is. This is real. But what I understand about materialism from materialism itself, from science, is that when we study the human brain, Dawkins-style inquiry into the world centers your entire life experience, not only in the left hemisphere of the brain, but in the very front of the left brain, in the prefrontal cortex. The enlightenment has caused a massive biasing of the human experience where we only trust reductive knowledge. So you might have heard that on the two hemispheres of the brain, the left brain is logical and the right brain is creative, and that's total horseshit. No neuroscientist has said that in 30 years. What is true is that the left brain is reductive and the right brain is holistic. So the the left brain sees woven fabric and a filler inside the cushion and staples. I didn't have to look. I just knew they were there. It sees a welded metal frame. It sees various diameters. It sees angles. And the right brain sees a chair. So when I ask myself, what is my degree of certainty about God, what did I just do? I told my brain, veer left. And by doing that neurologically, I've now shaped my life experience. Your left prefrontal cortex can't fall in love. Your left prefrontal cortex can't have its breath taken away by a sunset. It needs the help of the right brain to do that. I have learned that at the same time I have the same kind of existential epistemological questions that every atheist in the world has, why I say that half of my brain is an atheist today, that for the kind of experiences I have in meditation, the kind of experiences I have when I've had a mystical experience, the kind of experiences I have when I look in the faces of people that pass on the street and I see the children of God. All that evaporates if I ask what my number is on the Dawkins scale. So my entire approach to faith is to let my left brain do my left brain stuff when it comes to physics and when it comes to asking questions about what truly is. And by the way, the idea is I will defend to other people. If you don't think the world is round, we're going to have a conversation, and I'm going to be kind of a jerk. (laughs) If you want to say that you don't think climate change is occurring on the planet, I'll say you're very likely wrong, (laughs) because I can use science and I can use skepticism to defend these ideas that are happening in our shared reality. But when I apply that to God, 
all that love disappears, and I'm just alone again. And some people choose that, and it's fine. I love atheists. They are some of the, by the data, most moral people in the world. But there's just something about being in a room. We, I just got back from London, and I was in a room with a couple hundred people in central London, and we all chanted shalom for about 10 minutes. And whatever happened in that room doesn't fit on the Dawkins scale. And it's far too beautiful for me to toss away just so I can be more certain about the structure of the world. This is the humility we find in a mystical faith, even a mystical Christianity, where I'm no longer making a post-enlightenment defense that at some point there was a man who was God who rose from an empty tomb after being crucified. And instead, I think, what does sitting with that story tell me about myself, tell me about others, and maybe hint about the larger cosmos? Because if I ask the Dawkins scale, to interpret Martin Luther King Jr. saying the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, I say that's nonsense. The moral arc of the universe is non-existent, but the arc of the universe bends towards entropy. And that's true for solving any physical problem. But for finding the will to wake up in America in 2018, I need some love. I need some Jesus. I don't just need like ambiguous love. I need the person of Jesus Christ to say, I came for every person, every woman, every brown person, every queer person, that no matter what story humanity tells itself to rip itself apart, there's another story in which Jesus said, I came to draw all things together. So, on the Dawkins scale, I am an I. Hi there. First off, uh, thank you so much for what you do. Um, you inspire me. You inspire so many people in this room, so thank you. Um, my question relates to what we talked about earlier before the podcast aired, and that was on building community outside of this podcast sphere. And um, I've seen you demonstrate that in the liturgist gatherings. I've seen you demonstrate that in gatherings like this. Um, but also, I see um, a lot of people rising up and wanting to build gatherings of their own with the church. And so I've had the privilege of trying to build these gatherings um, with the church that I'm currently at. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious, kind of some guidelines you go by. Um, when building safe spaces. Yeah, guidelines. Okay. okay, thank you. Thank you. Are you uh, on staff at that church? No. Would they, would they have you in leadership, just out of curiosity, based on your gender? Yes. Yes, great. Definitely. Okay, so they're already, I'm already huge fans. Okay, <laughs> uh, already a huge fan. First thing I've learned recently, and this is a hard lesson for me, this is a, I've been depressed lesson. There are no safe spaces. They do not exist. I thought I had made a safe space for a lot of people, and it turns out I made a safe space for 
post-evangelical, post-mainline, mostly white dudes. That was the start of my work. And they felt super safe, because guess what? We were all the same. And so when I said something that we all felt safe, oh, wow. And then uh, as this kind of deconstruction process went, the way I kind of found a way back into the Christian faith was through liberation theology, an idea that started in Latin America and then took root in American soil through black liberation theology, which is fire, which exposed me to a small problem. <laughs> I am the physical and sociological embodiment of one of the most powerful oppressive groups in human history, straight, white, Western Europeans. So this space that I thought was safe, it was super safe for people of privilege who for the first time felt like they were on the outside because their churches got mad and made them leave, which is bad. Don't hear me wrong. People commit suicide when they've been ejected from a faith community, but no post-evangelicals are being shot by the police. There are no safe spaces. Uh, so what I've learned about creating spaces well is I've learned to listen from the margins. I've, my people, straight white dudes, have been in charge too long to have a clue about holding other viewpoints together. So my go-to is to say, what are black women and queer people doing? So uh, Mickey Scott Bay Jones, who's a dear friend of mine, says that we cannot create safe spaces we can only create brave spaces. Brave spaces are where we invited to come in with our shit and show up for each other. And in a brave space, as my other dear friend Hillary McBride let me know recently, there's a great rule for dealing with all the different viewpoints in the room. It's called ouch oops. Because guess what? Tonight, it's very likely that someone in this room has just begun a journey where they're thinking through the theological implications of same-sex marriage, and they might have a question about that. And their question, driven with beautiful intent of knowing and honoring others, might hurt someone who's actually queer. So in a brave space, as you are hurt, you say out loud, ouch. And then the person, without asking what the ouch is about at all, says, oops, and moves on. We acknowledge the fact that our best intentions can still hurt other people. And we accept it into a space together because, damn it, we're here because we believe universal human love is possible. That's why I'm in the room tonight. That's why I give up so much of my life to meet all of you is because I believe, honest to goodness, we can all love each other. Ouch. Oops. The other thing churches need to understand, you might be the sweetest, most sincere staff and clergy team in human history, and it'll still terrify people when you say the same thing that the staff person that molested them said. So there's something about this entire format, rows of pews, a stage, lights, a cross, that for some people brings up not just, I didn't like the color of the carpet or that music was bad, but the deepest hurt they ever experienced. 
So what I have found, and the reason I think millions of people listen to the podcast, is I don't expect people to believe anything. I don't expect people to behave a certain way except with respect for each other's dignity. And I host, but I don't lead. There's nowhere, I'm not trying to convince you of anything tonight. If you're an atheist tonight and you leave an atheist, yes, as long as you're happy. If you're a Christian tonight and something I say makes you an atheist, but it makes you more free, I'm excited about it, right? What I'm trying to do is create a space for people to know, each, know themselves better, to heal, and then connect with each other in a healthy way, which means a lot of the kind of things we think are important in churches just aren't. They just aren't. And the final thing I would tell churches is if you're trying to reach a certain community, this is tough because we follow Jesus, and Jesus was the Savior of the world, we believe. However, none of us are Jesus. We're not the Savior of the world. So if you're trying to reach a particular group in your church, get some of the people in that group in to plan and lead with you. Um, churches say, we want to reach millennials. How do we get them on the steering committee or whatever? Uh, no, if you want to reach the millennials and community, get about three of them go to lunch and say, what can we do? And they'll probably talk about something justice-oriented in the community and just do that. It doesn't matter if it's on a Sunday morning. I think we're going through an era right now where a lot of institutional scaffolding that served the faith well for years is crumbling, and that's because it got commandeered by systems of control and power and domination of oppression. And I believe, in a very I way, imaginary number, that maybe right now the name of Christianity is being reclaimed by Christ, and that's why so many churches are in trouble. Because if we care more about the reputation of a given church than people who've been hurt in a community, I just don't think that's the gospel. So create brave spaces. Hosts don't lead. And invite the people you're trying to reach to not only advise, but actively lead and partner in whatever you're doing. Um, you know, how, how many white churches went to an inner city area and thought, we're going we're gonna to redeem this community with straight eight praise music? <laughs> and then why didn't it work? I don't know. If you're in a Spanish neighborhood, maybe people on the platform should speak Spanish, right? Um, just simple stuff like that. So it's not easy, but it works. Hello. Hi. Um, so I listened to your podcast about two years ago, and it made me an atheist. So thanks. <laughs> My mom says, fuck you, but I say, <laughs> thank you. Um, I've heard you talk a lot about you know, his question, like, I mean, what is God? And, like, kind of breaking that down. But then I also hear you talk a lot about Christ personally. And a lot of the things that I ran into was like, yeah, Jesus is cool. I can get down with Jesus. But I can't get down with the what is God thing. And so mm -hmm. then I floated into mysticism, and I was like, I'm down with this. And then I was like, nah, I'm not down with this, actually. And then I recently got hired at a private Christian school. And 
irony. So I'm, I'm a living lie like every purpose. day. On, well, I, I work with kids with autism, so I'm, I'm contracted. Okay. I'm not for the school, but I'm at the school. Yes. Listening to them. Teach. Thank you, by the way. Yeah. Like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Exactly. Um, and it's very triggering because I don't know if anybody here has seen the movie Jesus Camp. Uh, it's on Netflix. Go watch it if you haven't. But that was my childhood. Basically just like evangelical, charismatic spirits always doing something. Uh, so my question for you is the disconnect seems very apparent to me, but it's taken for granted in a lot of Christian circles. And I keep hearing you jump back and forth between we need Jesus, but what is God? And that's where I'm kind of sitting at. And it's in a unique position because my sister is going through kind of a similar thing that I did. And I don't want to be like, hey, listen to this podcast. I made me an atheist. Uh, but I also want to give her sound advice because she is kind of without friends. Yeah. So I want to be able to help her out as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. That's tough. That's tough. So you're post-theism, atheism, private Christian school, which they tend to be a little more towards the conservative end of the <laughs> Christian spectrum to begin with. Why is that? Oh, indoctrinate in the future. Okay. Um, <laughs> the main line's like, we just want to love people. Then the conservative Christian's like, we need to make more of us. Oh, we're going to die out in a generation. Do you remember that? Anybody in the conservative world, we're going to die out in a generation? Wow. God has not given us a spirit of fear. Um, I just feel hopeful with what you just said. One, you went into a place that is spiritually antagonistic to your worldview, but you did it to serve a community that is often forgotten and neglected in the world. So first, thank you. Thank you for caring about children with autism. They are often forgotten. Uh, And if they remember, they're thought of as strange. I'm also really hopeful because if you're not sure what to think about God, but you can get on board with Jesus, and as a weirdo Christian, I think that's what Jesus is for. If God is in any way the creator and sustainer of all things, then everything I know about physics tells me God's pretty, pretty hard to understand. Pretty much as soon as you get in the realm of language, you've blown it. That's why I love Jesus. One of the reasons is God in Jesus has a face and a name and used words. Like when we have God talking in the Bible... Moses is like, who are you? And God's like, I am. (laughs) Which is already a head trip in English. But I understand that if you know Hebrew and you read it in the original language, it means I am that I am while simultaneously meaning I will be that which I will be. So like the first kind of thing God's saying to Moses is existentialism. Thousands of years ago. He beat the French by a long way. And every time we see God, other than in the garden, which I think is interesting, God portrayed in Scripture, God is this distant, unknowable, oh, by the way, if you look at God, you die kind of thing. And Jesus made people breakfast. And he fed them. 
And if they were sick, he healed them. And if they were tired, he took care of them. He seemed much more concerned with people existing in community together and helping others than getting people to make statements of belief. He seemed to have most of his frustration for religious elites and most of his patience with people who didn't really quite know what was going on. Not just patience, compassion, love, grace. Uh, In Matthew, when it talks about the crowd, this large of probably mostly agricultural people that would follow Jesus wherever he went with no theological or scriptural education of their day, go try to find Jesus rebuke the crowd in the Gospels. Look for it. So you're not sure who God is, but you like Jesus, and you have found your neighbor to be autistic children in conservative Christian homes, or at least in a conservative Christian school. And you, as a good Samaritan, have decided, I don't care what it costs me with the holy people. These kids by the side of the road, I'm there. You identify however you want. To me, you are akin in the kingdom of Christ. So, if Jesus is all you can handle, just handle Jesus. That's what all the disciples did. Every time they mentioned God, they were super wrong. <laughs> Every time. They'd be like, Jesus, God done it on there. He's like, whoa, man, where did you get that? Put the sword away, and what is the right-hand thing? This is all about the kingdom of heaven is like a, like a yeast. What? <laughs> We're so obsessed with getting it right. I don't care. If I, people have, I get so many emails. Thanks, Mike. What if you die and you go to heaven? First, I'll be like, holy shit. And you stand before God. What are you going to say? What if you were wrong? What if it really is a profession of faith or whatever? And I just don't worry about that. Because the story I see told in the Scripture over and over and over, one, is just not a lot of talk about the afterlife and a lot of talk about this life. And number two... All the commandments seem to be synthesized on love, loving God and loving other people. And when, 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 when religious elite tried to like contextualize that and proof text that and apply a hermeneutic and a systematic theology, Jesus said, take care of the people that the religious elite won't touch because it's better to be a despised minority who cares for people, than to be a holy person who looks right in the eyes of society and does nothing. So if you're an atheist who helps autistic children, if there's an in and an out, you're in. And the people shouting unclean better watch out. I want to know why you think there is no safe place. Hmm. That is contrary to what I believe. I haven't, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, I may be wrong, 
But I, I believe there is a safe place, but I want to hear your rebuttal. I would actually be really interested in hearing uh, you tell me about what you see as a safe space, because I'm genuinely fascinated. Why, why, does, why does the Bible say fear not? Mm. Mm-hmm. I want you to keep your, your thoughts and whatnot, but I, I, like, I like to know I'm on the right path. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for your question and for speaking up. This is a room where disagreement is not just allowed, it's encouraged. So I'm happy to respond. Uh, I don't know that we'll end in a place of agreement, but I hope we can end in a place where we are friends. Wouldn't that be amazing in 2018? Um, The reason I say that there are no safe spaces is because spaces have people in them. And the way I understand the human animal um, is that we have a very, very powerful set of uh, innate drives to watch out for ourselves and those closest to us first, our social group next, and then to actually be kind of antagonistic or afraid of people that don't make that group. And so... That's always in every room, this tension between the selfish animal and the altruistic animal. And we don't particularly understand what it's like growing up as someone else. And the more someone grew up in a different environment than we did, the less we understand what their life is like. So some of the things that make make us feel safe and not have fear might make someone else feel afraid. So I can't speak for anyone else, but I can speak for me. So right now I am only speaking for me. When I grew up in in the southeastern United States, anytime I saw a police car, I felt safer because police are here to serve and to protect That made me feel safe. As I've grown older and made friends with people with a lot more different backgrounds, I've understood that some of my friends in Tallahassee, Florida, who have dark skin, who are black, when they see a police car, even when they were my age as a child, they were afraid and nervous. So the same symbol, a police car, made me feel safe and made someone else feel unsafe. When I grew up, nothing. I was a bullied kid. I had no friends as a kid. I got, my, I got beat up all the time. Do you know where I never got beat up? In a church. So to this day, I walk into churches and I go, oh, okay. And I see one of these and I go, oh, wow, I'm safe. But to my friends, and I speak only for me, I don't know what your experience is, I've had friends tell me that they grew up in church, and at some point in their life, they were a little boy, and I was a little boy, and we were friends, and then one day a strange thing happened to me. I noticed a girl who did not have the cooties. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Suddenly, 
this previously strange and formidable creature, was the most fascinating thing I'd ever seen. And I was very nervous, but I went home, I told my mom, and she thought it was adorable. And I told my dad, and he thought it was awesome. So I had my first crush on a girl. Well, a dear friend of mine, the first time he had that moment, it was another boy. Now, he was Baptist just like I was. And when he had that experience, he was terrified and started to pray because he knew it wasn't okay for a boy to have a crush on another boy. So as our lives unfolded, I became a Sunday school teacher and a deacon. I got married in the church. Hundreds of people showed up to celebrate that union. When I have kids, the church affirmed and loved and affirmed and loved and supported and loved and affirmed. And my friend tried to pretend. He got married and it didn't work because he wasn't attracted to his wife. And she couldn't handle that, and they got divorced. And then he told people at his church that he was gay, and they drove him out. He didn't want to leave the church. He was driven out, and he found refuge in the, at the time, underground gay culture in Atlanta, Georgia. Lived through the HIV-AIDS epidemic. So when he walks into a church, he does not feel safe. And that's what I mean when there are no safe spaces. Everybody is carrying their own suitcase full of concrete. And that, what that, that weight that they carry is the wounds that have been inflicted on them in life. And do I believe that Jesus wants to wipe every tear from every eye? You bet I do. And I think if it's just the person in Jesus, they have found a safe space. But when you add one more sheep to that flock, things get dicey. So the way we create the safest spaces possible is we understand that even with my best efforts to love and honor and support other people, sometimes I will still hurt them, and that means it's not safe. But I can make it brave by saying, I will respond with grace when it's brought to my attention that I hurt you in some way. And in doing so, we can provide healing to the world. This has become like the most Christian episode of Ask Science Mike in years, but <laughs> that's the opportunity. The opportunity for Christianity is not to win elections. It's not to have influence with the Oval Office or the halls of Congress. The potential for Christianity in this country is to say, we love you, whoever you are. We support you, whoever you are. We accept you and we affirm you, whoever you are, and not in some let's build amazing structures way, but in a, when you're in the hospital, we're going to bring casserole way. I imagine what it would have been like for my friend if he would have said, 
I have a crush on a boy. And his church would have loved him as much as my church loved me. That would have been a safe world, but we're not there yet. But maybe the kingdom of heaven is making the whole world that way. Hello, uh, my name's Leilani. Um, so I read your book this past summer, and whew, it shook some stuff up. Um, and uh, so one part that really stood out, or at least what I understood it to be, was this piece where you're talking about how your more conservative background and rigid religious structure actually helped develop the neural paths in your head and uh, inclined you later to be able to engage a more mystic understanding of your faith. Um, so my question is, I work with a lot of youth and kids in my community. Um, I work for a local nonprofit and we uh, are faith-based and we care about um, <laughs> like faith and discipleship and, and creating spaces for students to engage that. But now I'm in this place where I'm like, I'm questioning everything. I don't want to just teach you lies but or teach you something I'm not certain about. But is it still worth engaging mm -hmm. these practices or structures to help you later? Mm -hmm. So if you could just, yeah, speak into when you're raising kids, walking with youth, what's your responsibility or how do you do that responsibly? Wow, great question. Really, really good question. Was the problem with my religious upbringing that I was told that the world was created in six days and that two people walked in a garden with God? Or was the problem with my upbringing that I was taught to be deeply ashamed of every natural impulse my body had? I think if when I was in my 30s, I would have simply learned that the universe took billions of years to form, but that the, the, the subtext of biblical literalism was truly God is love, not God wants to send you to hell unless you make the correct cognitive decision and affirm that verbally. I don't think I would have had the messy smear fall apart. Here's the thing. To teach children, you have to lie to them. <laughs> to teach humans, you have to, if not lie, you have to be inaccurate. You can't learn about quantum dynamics unless you learn about atoms first. When we talk about atoms, there's something called the orbital model, so you've got a nucleus, you've got electrons that spin around it, like a moon circling a planet, and that's utter hogwash. That is not how atoms work. What actually happens is wave functions collapse when force-carrying particles convey information to one another, and therefore these probabilistic intersections called protons are surrounded by a wave function, probabilistic cloud of electrons that cannot be definitively tracked in space and time simultaneously. Which helps you understand an atom, this 
or the second one. But guess what? What I just said, even about the wave functions, is still a metaphor that doesn't convey the reality of the universe. To really get electrons, you've got to be fantastic at math. And when you see people that actually get quantum physics on a mathematical level and you ask them to describe it, you can just see the frustration on their face in the same way that when someone asks me what it was like on that beach, it was like the veil coming off my wife's face on our wedding day. It was like a mustard seed. Whatever God is, is so grand and so magnificent. And by the way, if you're an atheist, just substitute the word universe or God right now, you'll get to the same place. Whatever it is, is so grand and so magnificent, the only way there is metaphor. So if we tell metaphors with love, we do no harm as long as we are open. So I stopped believing in God, and then I still taught my... I'd said the sinner's prayer with my oldest daughter not believing in God and felt super ashamed. But she had trouble sleeping because she was afraid that if she died, she would go to hell. It's the only answer I had was to talk about sin and salvation. It's the only tool set I had. So the way we do it is when children are very small, they're developmentally appropriate for certainty. By the way, did you know young children can only understand things that have faces? or exist in the physical world. You cannot teach a two-year-old about justice. You can only teach them about a judge. And the Bible begins with what? God walking with two people. There's no better way to explain God to a two-year-old than the Garden of Eden. So when they were little, I told them the stories of faith. And as they got older, I let their questions guide when I would open up more. So it came from God is to this is what I believe God is, and this is what we believe. Well, what do other people believe? Then I would tell them. And I remember the first time Madison asked me, well, how do we know we're right and they're wrong? And I said, kiddo, that beats me. That honesty invites a dialogue and a discussion that leads to a faith that doesn't have to be torn down later. I just think the important thing is that when we talk about faith, we talk about a redemptive. Uh, at Good Sam, we had some Sunday school literature. Jenny was teaching BBS. Um, Jenny has a limit to the degree of Bible she would like to instruct to people, including children. And so she asked me if I would help out because we got to this one part that the recommended curriculum was to talk about a salvation experience and to take, to have children write their names on paper and to nail their names to the cross. Say, Jesus took all your sin away when he died. I was like, I can just imagine like these children of age went, this is something you did. <laughs> so 
We took the same message that God is love, and we took a cross, and we did talk about how unconditional love scares people. And when you say that everyone belongs, it scares people, and that Jesus knows what it means to take a stand for loving others. And then we wrote our names on Valentine hearts. And when they would come up to put their heart on the cross, I would whisper in their ear, God loves you and so do I. I don't want to throw out the Christian story. I don't want to throw out the Bible. It's like the Bible and Harry Potter, my two favorite serial <laughs> works. Um, I wish I was kidding. When we do the liturgist gathering, when I do a liturgy, we do a sacred reading where I read from parts of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Deathly Hallows. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to throw any of that stuff out. I just want to stop using it to terrify people and kick their asses. Let's use this great story of faith and this, God, this is the most Christian science mic ever, this great cloud of witnesses, all these people People say, why do you call yourself a Christian? Well, the queer theologians can try to redeem that word. Who am I to say that I won't? Right? If, if people whose descendants were stolen from the continent of Africa and brought to America on ships where they were owned by people who called themselves Christians, if those people can call themselves Christians, then who am I to say, let's throw out that story? Instead, I ask, how can this story be used for redemption, for liberation, and for love? And in all those ways, friends, I'm a Christian, and I think it's okay if kids are too, as long as they aren't shamed and ostracized, if they have questions or they disagree, or they say, I'm not into this. Um, it, the church I want is one where atheists don't get kicked out of youth group, and there's no strings attached. So just try to get to that point. Uh, kind of going back to youth, uh, we have an election coming up, several, hopefully in the future. And uh, the demographic that, uh, doesn't, that doesn't show up to the elections is young people. I wanted to know what your take on why that is and if there's any solutions. Also, can we just make an app and vote on that? <laughs> <laughs> Great questions. Uh, and I always love talking politics in churches. So um, <laughs> never goes wrong. Young people are idealistic. Politics isn't. So if young people do get engaged politically, they get behind some candidate who says, let's start over. They feel the burn, so to speak. <laughs> and then because of political machinations, maybe that person doesn't win, or maybe that person just didn't get enough votes, or maybe they get railroaded, or I was trying to think of a good uh, colloquialism. And then they go, oh, 
but I disagree with like 19% of the person who won the primaries positions. I can't vote for somebody who disagrees with me on partial birth, free-range chickens. See what I did there? You thought I went one way and I went another. I built tension, released it, you laugh. It's my favorite thing. But some, like, issue didn't line up, so they go, well, I'm out. I'm not voting. And then somebody terrible wins. <laughs> Hypothetically. And, <laughs> and then they're like, ah, see, the system's broken. Here's the thing. The system really is broken. It really is. It doesn't matter if the donkeys or the elephants are in office. Multinational corporations are in charge. Doesn't matter. They, and the multinationals have figured out if they play a game of chess against themselves and they make the board social issues, we'll all fight about marriage while they vacuum up the entire economy. If they, get us, if, they, if they make us play social issue chess, then white families on the edge of poverty in the Midwest or below the poverty line will say that other brown people coming across the border also below the poverty line are the problem, not the people taking all the money from every interaction and destroying local economies through massive shipping infrastructures. Do you know when multinationals open up a business in a town? For every one job they produce, they kill three to six, which is nothing, nothing compared to the 18 to 24 jobs lost when it comes in just one hour or just one day via a postal carrier. I'm not naming corporations here because I'm terrified of them. You notice I'll name politicians, I'll name church leaders. Not corporations. So there's this whole game going on, and the way the political class that serves the corporate class wins is to disenfranchise most people and then manipulate gullible blocks of voters. That's right, I just called the Republican and Democratic basis gullible. So the system's broken, and the system breaks more when they convince us not to participate. So uh, I went hard. I've never really weighed in. I've weighed in on policy publicly. I'd never weighed in on candidates until Trump and Clinton. And I went, oh boy, this can't happen. So the first time ever, we did like a special liturgist podcast episode, and we were like, we know this audience is almost entirely millennial and post-millennial, y'all go vote. And they did, mostly for Gary Johnston. And um, <laughs> Or wrote in Bernie, right? So what we have to do is have a conversation with young people about how to translate idealism into reality. So if we want to destroy the system, I'm down. You want to abolish ICE? Sign me up. But we're not going to abolish ICE with hashtags, and we're not going to abolish ICE like everybody just shows up and is like, 
You ever watch The Office? You remember The Office? You remember when Michael Scott declared bankruptcy? (laughs) I declare bankruptcy! If we all right now go to an immigration detention facility and say like, you're abolished! Like, it'll go on social media, and the people in the building will have a chuckle. They'll be like, liberals. (laughs) The way we change things If the system has a 3 to 5% bias, hypothetically, towards one party in the popular vote, then we got to turn out 10% of a vote difference to attack the system from within and outside it. The apathy millennials expressed, especially in the Midwest and Southern states, in the last election really gave the system a strong boost. The judiciary, forget the Supreme Court. Federal benches all over the country have a 30-year stack now. (laughs) That's a huge problem. It's not going to take one election. It's going to take 15, 20 elections. And what I want is not for the Democrats to sweep control of government. The Democrats are 2.5% better on issues of racial justice than Republicans and 4.5% better for my queer friends. What I want is every Republican and every Democrat who's elected in office in America to have trouble sleeping at night because a riled up and active electorate is looking over their shoulder and saying, if you blow this, you're out. When we show up, they lose. Now, can we do it with an app? No. I've had too much time in information security personally to think involving electrons in voting is a good idea. You show me any system and I by myself with enough time will find a way to compromise and use that system against itself. What do we need? Paper ballots with audit trails and automatic voter registration and a national holiday so that people who are economically disadvantaged get the day off work and they get paid while they go vote. And the corporations will say, we can't afford it. And we'll say, I saw your quarterly report. Shut up. (laughs) Organizing the government as a government, which is us, by the way, is the way we keep you from creating policies that make you richer and us poor. So... We're going to register every person, and we're going to make a national holiday. And let's, I love mail-in ballots. They're paper. They're auditable. They don't have any significant exposure for voter fraud, which is not a widespread issue anyway. Let's get the paper. It's fine if machines count them. Let machines scan them. But when we have a recount, let's have paper. Let's be sure our electoral process is working. Once, now, we can't do that now. There's a significant part of America that wants none of that to happen because there's a huge problem America's getting younger and browner. It scares some people. Not just on the right, by the way. I don't know if you've seen a picture of the U.S. Congress. It's a lot of white, old, male Democrats serving. Um, so those, those people don't want this to happen. So the way we do it is we not, we not only get involved voting, We get involved at the primary level. 
I'm so excited about how many queer folks, how many women, and how many people of color in this last primary season got on ballots. We start taking state legislatures, forget the feds, start taking state legislatures and start changing these policies. California, by the way, should be way ahead on all of this, right? If we're supposed to be the, the People's Republic of California is what they call us back home, or America of the future, as Joy Reid says, we should use the electoral gap here to drive, I think maybe with the number two or three priority in California should be electoral reform. We should show, we should show the rest of the country how it's done. And eventually, I'm getting real deep. This, you didn't know it was political science, Mike. We need to reform the electoral system so that more than two parties are statistically viable. So our voting methodology right now, first past the post voting, means if you vote for someone who's not going to be in the top two, your vote was statistically wasted. It's impossible. There are other mathematically viable forms of voting like ranked choice or first alternate vote systems that allow you to vote for third parties without tossing your vote or making the person you agree with least win. So I guess in addition to the stuff I said before, I would also say toss out first past the post voting, starting at the state and local level. What do you believe in more, science or magic? I mean, not science, sorry, interstellar space travel. Okay, you had me at science versus magic, by the way. <laughs> in a huge way. So, but help me, I didn't catch the connection between science and interstellar travel and magic. Could you give me the question again? Interstellar space travel or magic? Which do I believe in more or which do I like more? Believe in more. Believe in more. Okay. Uh, well, believe it or not, I am super into magic. There's a place in Los Angeles called the Magic Castle. It's my favorite <laughs> because I go there and the impossible is real. Uh, I watched a guy not only do amazing things with cards, he held a deck of cards in front of me and I could see a card that wasn't my card. And with the card up, he waved the deck of cards in full sight and my card was there. He didn't flip the card. He transformed the card in front of my eyes, and I was like, magic is real. <laughs> For my 40th birthday, my friends uh, got us into the Magic Castle. We spent hours in there, uh, and in that process, another person put a deck of cards in my hand. Okay, I got this deck of cards. I'm holding it. He never touched it, and it became a quartz crystal. That was the shape of a deck of cards. Powers and principalities, y'all. Spiritual warfare. <laughs> it's real. I've been wrong about the devil. Um, apparently, he works at the Magic Castle in Los Angeles. <laughs> what I mean is, I like thinking about the world in magical ways. And I actually think that's important. Because in science, the problems that seem impossible are first solved by imagination. You talk about interstellar space travel, which I believe is possible, but today would definitely be magic. Before we had submarines or spaceships, we had people writing stories about them. 
So I wouldn't say which do I believe in more. I don't know if we'll ever travel outside of our solar system. That would create, we'd need a phenomenal amount of energy that I have no idea how we would get. But I would say that believing that magical things are possible can inspire us through science in finding ways to make the impossible real, which is why this November I'm taking night classes at Magic University to learn magic. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so if you want magic to be real, learn a lot of math and engineering, and you can make the impossible possible. Hello. Hi. Global warming. So I work a nice gig. I know. I know. I work an office job, nine to five, till I die. And I just finished listening to your podcast on it. Sorry. Yeah, I know. And what what kind of advice do you have for regular people like, like myself? Like, why should I keep on going to work and living? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was just I was just telling Brandy, I should I learn how to make a fire and how does forage? There won't be enough wood left. Don't worry about that. Okay, see, I'm just kidding. I'm just I don't kidding. know. So that's my question. How do you? Why are we here? We we should be doing something else. If it's all just going to hell. Thank you. That's what I like to call an easy question. I I really appreciate those that, like, I don't have to think about. um, I'm being very sarcastic. I saw that got lost in other people. Like, that's an easy question? Just give up. Uh, No. Uh, Last week on Ask Science Mike, I talked about the most recent report from the IPCC on climate change, the abbreviated version is, we are so screwed. Basically, the effects of carbon in the atmosphere are more severe than we anticipated, and carbon is being released into the atmosphere more than we thought. And the idea was that if we do the Paris Accords, we can limit warming to two degrees or less. And when the IPC studied the impact of the Paris Accords, it'll take us to like three and a half degrees Celsius, which is a really bad zone, three and a half degrees Celsius. So uh, what do we do about that? One, although the report said things will be much worse than we expected by 2030 and significantly worse than we expected by 2040, we do have like 11 years to make changes. This is exactly the wrong time to give up. So the first thing is, yes, I hit you and the news hit you with some terrible news last week. So what do you do right now? Grieve, get it out. Panic, that's fine. Listen to, you know, sad music. Whatever you gotta do, be sad. It's fine, grieve. Get it out of your system, because once you're done grieving, it's time to work. Now, what does that mean? It means, yes, we as consumers can collectively make changes that reduce the amount of carbon in the air. We can choose to take mass transportation more often. 
right? We can eat less meat. We can use less energy, set our thermostats higher, and all those things will help a little. Not a little. If we all did that, it'd make a big difference. But the fact is, most of the carbon that enters the atmosphere happens at a much larger governmental and corporate scale. So the real action we have to take right now is tell every politician non-action and non-dialogue climate change is not an option. We understand you're in a difficult electoral position. Maybe some percentage of our, our local population doesn't think climate change exists. Don't worry, we're going to organize and outvote them forever. We're going to drive denial about climate change to an electoral non-reality, and we demand action. But guess what? We don't have to win elections to demand action from corporations. We can start looking at how much carbon different industries put into the air, who's making changes and who isn't, and vote with our dollars and change things much, much, much more quickly. So this is the period where not you should feel like it's impossible and hopeless. This is the period where you should be doing research to figure out what puts carbon in the atmosphere where. Now I get that that's tough. So the other thing I'm doing is if I invi I've invited a bunch of climate scientists and climate economists to come on future episodes of Ask Science Mike, and we're going to have an ongoing series of people much smarter than me talking about what can be done. Because the problem with climate change, when we talk about the real scale, people get terrified and they shut down. And that's the worst thing that can happen. And I'm not hopeless because my ancestors could own people. But that's not okay now. In my lifetime, I've seen major changes on how society relates to gay, lesbian, bi, trans, and queer folk. We're capable of change. We're capable of rapid change. And the time to tell stories that create that rapid change in regards to climate change is here. It's now. To make, you know, we did an episode on climate change for the liturgists, and I had a thing, a call to action where people could call their congressperson, and the response rate was so low that I got depressed and was like, oh, we're done. I'm going to buy a very large SUV, <laughs> run on my credit card bills and not worry about it. And then I started noticing at every episode, every live event I do, three to five people tell me, you know... I became a vegetarian because of your climate change episode. So it's not just that change could happen. Change is happening. Other good news related to our voting question a moment ago, there's not the same split on climate change among millennials and post-millennials that there is among Gen X and boomers. So the faster I can help all you young people take over society, 
I am here for it. Hey, Science Mike. Uh, uh, maybe not the best question, but I'm legitimately, legitimately curious about this. You create podcasts. What, if any, podcasts do you listen to yourself and why? Okay. I listen to podcasts on airplanes, so I tend to queue up a bunch. I'm still a fan of You Made It Weird by Pete Holmes. It's a podcast called uh, So Many White Dudes. Yes. I like that one a lot. It's not hosted by a white dude. And they have one white dude token guest per season. All the guests are people, the host and the guests are people of color, women of color, queer folk. Um, Pod Save the People, when I need to get my, my liberal rage on, is a good one. Um, I like Invisibilia. I was fascinated in the way you're fascinated watching a train wreck. Elon Musk on Joe Rogan. I listen to the Robcast sometimes, but it's weird because I've talked to Rob not on a podcast, so I don't know what to do. I try to talk back, and I'm like, oh, wait, he's not here? <laughs> I had the opposite problem when I went on NPR's All Things Considered because I didn't know I could talk because I was used to listening to NPR. <laughs> So I kept, they'd ask me a question, I'd be like, oh, shit. Um, when I, I do know that all the faith-based podcasts I check out are uh, hosted by women or people of color. Um, but I actually, for a podcaster, don't listen to podcasts that often. Um, I used to, and then... <laughs> This is weird. I get this like dread that I'll rip somebody off if I listen to a podcast, which is ridiculous. Uh, I, I think it's safe to say I kind of have my own style and way of doing it. Thanks. And it's not like I have any creative control over the liturgist podcast whatsoever. Um, I, I don't want it. Like I, Michael is Grammy nominated at the very end of the scoring, and I'm like, well, I quoted some science. Just make sure it's in there. Uh, but yeah, it's a thing I worry about. And I've also learned that podcasts are people who commute. I don't. Work out. I don't. <laughs> do yard work. I do water the lawn, but I, I like to do it inside. It's not lawn. It's, it's plants. Um, so yeah, it's a great question and the worst answer of the evening. <laughs> uh, hey, hey. Um, so, uh, I had a spiritually transformative experience like you did, um, you know, uh, bright lights, overwhelming peace, all that good stuff. Um, and so I looked more into those experiences, and one of the things I found is that a lot of people that have them tend to become more spiritual but less religious, and generally they believe that there's no singular correct faith, but rather all faiths have some truth to them and that they're all valid. And I'd be interested to hear your take on that, because I know you specifically uh, mentioned that you heard Jesus in your uh, experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. What, what is religion? What does it mean I'm spiritual, not religious? What does that mean? Is it about specificity? So I can clarify. 
I mean, I was saying that rhetorically to set myself up for an easy answer, but that's fine. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Go ahead. Right. So a lot of these people will have uh, in their experience, they'll experience, you know, not necessarily Jesus, but they'll experience Muhammad or uh -huh. they'll experience Buddha mm -hmm. or they'll experience some other religious figure. And so I guess the question is specifically, do you think that Jesus is more valid than the other spiritual leaders? Or do you think that so long as we follow the path of love, that is the correct path? Gotcha. Okay. So a correct, incorrect, go, no, go. Um... Yeah, um, Jesus is the only way to heaven, which is a literal place we go and we die, and if not, you spend eternity in eternal conscious torment. Not 100% joke. Greg, leave the do 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 do. That was on purpose. Um, something I've noticed when people are raised without a navigating faith story. They try to find one when they're older. So people raised in free thought or, or non-religious households, they get into adulthood, and I've had countless people, secular, non-spiritual parents, come to my events and ask me what to do about their child who is now in a cult or a megachurch, which is like a very large cult, um, I said it on stage. I love my job. I don't have any sponsors so nobody can pull their ads. Um, so we grow up in a tradition. We grow up in a stream. And I think there's something beautiful about that. I didn't get to know mystical oneness I didn't get to know ultimate reality as a kid. I got to know Jesus who didn't make fun of me and said he loved me even when I got beat up. I could have never gone anywhere more in faith without Jesus. Is Jesus more valid than Muhammad? I don't know. Jesus certainly helps me reach the divine more easily than Muhammad, though I have read the entire Quran. Though I'm told reading it in English is just not the same. I've heard it read, and it's beautiful. So we, we grow up, what I've noticed is we grow up in our traditions and we get very defensive of them. Because if Jesus helped me know God, and scriptures say that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and there's no way to the Father but by Jesus, then not only do I feel defensive, like I need to protect God, but I feel like God kind of wanted my protection, which meant it was very awkward for me at lunch. Every day I had lunch in high school with an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Hindu, I'm seeing their faces, a Buddhist, and a Muslim. And sometimes people would be fasting or in the middle of a festival, and I would be like, oh man, I like you so much, I wish you weren't going to hell. 
And then they would think the same thing about me because we were all navigating our tradition. And then I lost my faith. And then I encountered God on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. And everything about that moment was beauty and light, and you know what I'm talking about. And when I went back and read the stories of the tradition I grew up in, they seemed so small and profane and exclusionary and limited compared to this great love that I'd encountered. And then I read the writings of Sufi mystics who came from a tradition called Islam. And I went, they saw that light that I saw. And then I, I started reading Jewish mystics and was shocked that other people who thought Yahweh was awesome had experienced this beauty. I discovered the Christian mystics last mainly because Betsy told me about them. And um, I was shocked to see how all these people from all these different traditions found the same beautiful light. I was training for a marathon a few years ago, and I was running outside. And I saw a tree, and then a tree, and then a tree, and then a tree, and then a tree. And I was tired, and I looked up, and I saw the canopy, how it was all one canopy. There were lots of trees and one canopy. And I saw a squirrel on the ground. The squirrel saw me. The squirrel was unsettled (laughs) by 225 pounds of me running his direction. He felt scared. Do you know what he did? He ran up a tree. You know which one? The closest one. Do you know where he got? The canopy, where he could roam the entire forest. Which tree was the right tree? The tree that was there. Now, when a tree is small, it's weak, it's easily broken. The gospel of Jesus at some point needed defending because there were like 11 Christians (laughs) who didn't even call themselves Christians, 11 followers of Jesus. And that was a very little tiny twig of eternal truth. But in time, it grew and grew and grew. And it's when you have a small tree and you put little stakes around it so you won't step on it, that makes sense. But if you put stakes around a mighty oak tree... Well, that's ridiculous. The oak tree can handle people in its branches. I think that all faith traditions come from the same soil, the same truth. And I think they lead to the same place, that which we call God. There's only one tree that I'm good at climbing. There's only one tree where I know that there's a notch for my foot here in James. And there's a hold for my hand here in Augustine. And I can use that tree and I can make it to the canopy. And for that, I will be eternally grateful.
But the goal of my life is not to convince people that I climb the one true and correct tree. My goal in life is to help others find the same shelter, the same rest, and the same canopy that I have been fortunate enough to discover. Okay, last one right there. Thank you. Hi. Um, I have an advice question. Okay. Um, so this question is, how do I go about creating dialogue with people that want to throw my identity under the rug? Mm-hmm. Well, to be clear, when you said you had an advice question, I thought you were about to give me advice. <laughs> and I was thrilled because I'm winging it up here. I cannot answer that question. I think that it would be wrong for me to attempt to answer that question because no one is trying to take away my identity and no one ever has. Someone might say, Science Mike, you're a straight white man. Haven't the feminists tried to take your identity? (laughs) And I would say, no. I think the feminists are just trying to get people to believe that they have one, too. Science Mike. Aren't gay people trying to destroy the family? No. I think they're just trying to have families, too. So I can't answer your question. Uh, I would refer you to the Reformation Project. I would refer you to Black Lives Matter. I would refer you to some marginalized group doing advocacy work at the intersections of your identity, which I do not know, for that work. What I can tell you is I don't think you should have to have the conversations with people who want to take away your identity. I think one of the most inhumane things progressive people do is expect the marginalized to explain the texture of the boot on their neck. Whose job is it to talk to clueless straight dudes and their weird questions about what happens in people's bedrooms. That's me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm an expert. I'm not saying I should get paid to to do it. I should not. But I should do enough of my homework to take that first inevitable wave of guilt that is the foundation of fragility. We are not psychologically equipped to handle the notion that in the act of trying to live out our lives, we have hurt and oppressed other people. We are not psychologically equipped to have been raised as white people and told that we had a civil rights movement where we fixed racism and then understand that in some way, 
Too many people with my skin color can make a brown person uncomfortable because the culture we don't even know exists follows us into the room. The job for people like me is to be justice first responders because although I cannot say what should happen and I cannot say the manner in which marginalized people should be liberated, that is for them and them alone to say, to dictate and to demand. I can say I understand that you feel icky when men hold hands. I used to feel the same way. I understand that when someone says on Twitter, white people, y'all, that you feel personally attacked because you feel like a good person. So I can say, I get that. I can sit with you. Let's talk about where that comes from. Let's make an appointment with your therapist so you can work through your stuff and we can stop worrying about the feelings of powerful people while less powerful people struggle to survive in our society. I am a first responder in the justice movement. I will never and should not be a leader or a guru or an advisor. And I know this because I am a Christian. I know this because I've devoted my life to studying what a first century Palestinian said about the world and about God. And I know that Jesus, the human person, lived in a society dominated by European rule. And I know that when the church first started, that it was controversial to consider the notion that Greeks and Romans could be included in that fellowship because we had the militaries. Why did I say we? Because I'm a Roman. I'm a white man in America. Rome's empire is nothing compared to the police force and stealth bombers that exist in the world to protect my place in global society. So when I think... How do I participate not only in justice, but in the gospel? I'm not looking as much at Matthew as I am the Roman centurion. What did the Roman centurion do? He went to this Jew and he called him teacher. I don't primarily listen to people of color and queer folks on theology as a matter of discrimination against white people. I love white people. I love white people. I love straight people. I love mayonnaise. (laughs) Every time I eat a ham sandwich, I put mayonnaise on it. That is my culture. (laughs) I love straight people. I love straight men. Other straight men typically dance as poorly as I do, and then I feel comfortable. (laughs) I like starting meetings precisely on time. That's great. I'm not saying that white people aren't Christians, that straight men can't be Christians, can't be leaders, can't be pastors. They've been for a while. 
What I'm saying is part of the perspective God showed us by becoming incarnate in someone living under the rule of empire is what God thinks about human empire. So I am doing my best to lead the great white revolution of getting out of the way of everybody else. Because the people trying to take away your identity, I bet I'm right when I say they're a lot like me. They dress like me. They drive cars like me. Police officers call them sir like me. So all I want to do, y'all, it's real simple. I get asked this all the time, and it, this depresses me. Oh, it's, it's angry science mic time. The fact that so many women and so many queer people and so many people of color tell me that I'm the only white man who's ever talked about their experience in a way that resonates is an indictment on all of us. Who am I? I'm a D ordained college dropout. <laughs> I used to get beat up in elementary school horribly. I've been sexually assaulted by four different people. Is it that some of us haven't hurt enough to know what it's like to hurt? So for every person of privilege listening to my voice, if you are straight, if you are white, if you are male, any one of those things, if you are a Christian, if you are an American, understand tremendous global privilege has been handed to you. If you can turn on a faucet and drink water, if you can walk into a store and get vegetables, tremendous privilege has been handed to you. And instead of getting angry when people who don't have what you have say their life sucks, listen to the hurt in their voices. Because I know you listen to the hurt in mine. And if there is to be a safe space, and if there is to be a brave space, and if there is to be a kingdom of heaven wherein God is with us and there is an empty tomb, it will only come when Roman centurions learn to say to Jewish rabbis, that's all I got. <laughs>